you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to begin our time by reading verses uh, 20 through 28. We studied this passage last week. I want to reread it to get us uh, back thinking about this subject this evening, uh, and then it'll lead us right into the next uh, passage. So what we're going to do is read this passage, uh, make sure we remember what we were talking about, and then I'm going to introduce to you um, a subject that Paul's going to talk about in the next passage and then we'll unpack it from there. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, uh, all about the resurrection. Last week was about why the resurrection matters. Tonight's going to be about the victory that we have in the resurrection of Jesus and our own future resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. That's us. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the God the Father, when he put an end to all the rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who puts all things under him is, is expect, accepted. As in, God the Father is over all of this. Now when all things are made subject to him, when the Son himself will also be subject to him who puts all things under him, that God may be all and in all. Now, that might be a little wordy for us to really comprehend as clearly as other scriptures, but what Paul is talking about here is that God has had a plan since the beginning of time, before time as we know it began. God has had a plan that will one day culminate in the resurrection of the dead. That Christ's resurrection was the first fruit, was the first bud of that promise. But one day, at the end of days, a resurrection of all that have died and a rapture of all that are still alive will capstone this plan that God has had for the ages. So Paul is going to continue tonight defending the resurrection as he builds toward what is one of the most celebrated passages of the whole Bible, in which he details our future resurrection. And now we talked about last week how the resurrection, again, is a fundamental, essential uh, part uh, to God fulfilling and completing his creative vision for the earth. So we had a big lofty conversation about what God has been planning since the beginning of time and how the resurrection is so crucial to understanding it all. Uh, so from the very beginning, we learned that God has been planning to merge the spiritual and the physical before the fall God had already envisioned a future that Revelation 21 previews for us where it says I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the new or the holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God so John sees heaven and earth merging he sees what was old passing away and something new being born but I want you to know that from the very beginning when it was just God in heaven he was planning for this moment so God in heaven before he made the earth was planning for the one day in the future when heaven and earth would become one. So if God sees value and use 
for this physical creation. We ourselves must not begrudge or merely tolerate it, but we place a high value on it as well. And that's Paul's argument to the Corinthians that didn't think it was a big deal that our bodies would be raised up one day, didn't see the reason for it all. And we've learned that there is an incredible reason. We know our daily lives matter significantly to God and his glory. It's easy to lose our sense of appreciation for the stage that God has placed us on, but we must see and appreciate the beauty the story, uh, in the story that God is telling. Uh, and yes, what's most beautiful about it and what's most amazing about it is how different God in heaven is from us on earth. Yet it's that contrast, it's that contrast between the spiritual and the physical that is meant to amplify the glory of God as he weaves this unlikely story together. God, the self-sufficient sovereign spiritual creator became a man of flesh and redeemed and rendered himself at the mercy of the physical elements to redeem it all for him and his glory. Uh, think about it. The God of who made the world, a world of lesser substance than his, that was an odd thing to think for that to happen. The angels didn't understand why he did it. The Bible says they were looking down in awe. Why would God do this? The same God didn't just make a world, but he delighted in that world, took pride in that world, and had a great investment in that world. And of course, that was perplexing in and of itself. But that same God didn't just delight in the world when it was for him, but even after it rebelled against him, he spared it. And that seems unexpected. But then the story goes that he entered into it and allowed it to overcome him and put him on a cross. And that's unthinkable. Yet all that happened so that he could cap the story off with his own resurrection from the dead, wherein he redeemed creation by his own power and his own skin and began working toward a unified creation that will one day come. So none of this could have ever happened uh, and, and uh, uh, would have ever been imagined. Nobody would have made this story up or conjured up. It all speaks to God's superior plans in which he would be glorified and recognized as he should be. God did all this because there's no other story that would bring greater glory to his name and, be, and prepare a better future for us made in his image. It's unbelievably believable, as in he, that we could never suspect it, but we can hardly deny it because it just comes together so perfectly. And thus, we live each day knowing that this world is our Father's world. And as Paul described in the scripture we just read, God has orchestrated everything so that, he so that we would laud him with the glory he deserves and understand that Christ served a unique purpose in bringing us into this story. He is a foretaste of what we get to experience. So the, the moral of the story is, without Christ in his resurrection, we have no entry into the story. But now we see the meaning of it all. We enter into this story boldly and enthusiastically and we live each day knowing that every moment counts and can count for him. But now Paul is going to shift his focus and his tone to something that might at first seem a little difficult to process. He's going to talk to us about the great trials and troubles we face as we strive or should strive to maximize each day for God's glory. He's going to tell us how the resurrection allows these trials and these troubles to find and take on a meaning that otherwise they would not have that meaning 
Otherwise, they would just be in vain or they would uh, be empty and there would be no hope or relief for us there. So we know that according to Jesus and according to the New Testament, uh, the Christian life is a life in which we will suffer. We are called to suffer. We are called to be a suffering people. We are meant to face hardships for the glory of God. If there was no resurrection, all of these trials and struggles and sufferings would just be reasons to sigh and and gasp and, and give up. Reasons to get frustrated with God even. But because of the resurrection, we completely understand or we can understand why the path of suffering is so for a Christian. So I want to recap some key New Testament passages that shows us the way of the Christian against the pressure and aggravation of this fallen world. And then it's going to tie right into what Paul's going to talk to us about next. So I want you to notice how when Jesus first introduced the concept of struggles and suffering to Christians, when he first introduced this to his followers, they probably had a good reason to say, huh? They probably had a good reason to say, come again? They probably had a good reason to say, whoa, whoa, Jesus, what do you mean we're going to face trials and struggles and hardships and suffering? What do you mean? I thought you were the king and I thought you were going to make things better. I thought we were following you because it was going to lead us to a better place. How in the world is that also going to lead us to some sort of uh, a life of great trials and trouble? But on the other side of his resurrection, they begin understanding what he meant and what the struggles would mean. So here's the setup. When Jesus first sent his disciples on the mission field, he promised them power from God. He promised that they would have the power of God on their side, that they would be able to do wonders and signs and miracles in his name. He told them to go and tell the people that God's Messiah had come, the kingdom's doors were opening, and that everyone should keep their eyes on Jesus. And the 12 were especially enthusiastic, and they came back rejoicing that they had power like Jesus had. They were stoked, they were excited, but Jesus said, I've got some more information I need to share with you about your mission. And it was almost like he took a 180 degree turn in his message. Matthew 10, verse 16, he said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that's not a good situation to be in, right? Because what do wolves do to sheep? They eat them, right? But Jesus says, hey, I got to tell you this. Yeah, there's going to be power and yeah, you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to do great things, but you're going to be like sheep in the midst of wolves. You're going to need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, as in you're not going to fight the wolves. You're going to be a witness to the wolves. Some of them you might lead to me, but most of them, they won't turn, but they'll make, they'll be sure to turn on you. They'll be sure to even harm you. He said, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before the governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them in the Gentiles. So Jesus made it very clear that the sufferings they were going to face, the trials they were going to face, were going to be for a reason. That there wasn't going to be a way they could be a witness without also facing these hardships. And they're listening very intently because they didn't like this and they didn't, they were hoping that he was just kind of talking about a one-off experience but he kept talking he said brother will deliver brother over to death father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake so again if you're if you're a follower of Jesus you're thinking Jesus this is not what we signed up for 
Maybe this isn't what you signed up for, but, but this is what Jesus told his disciples. You'll be hated by people because of me. And, and then he put it, to, put it to him this way. A, a disciple is not above, above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. He said, hey, y'all, keep your eyes on me because everybody loves me now, but y'all will see what happens to me in a few years. When I'm crucified, when I'm killed, just know that that's going to be a road you'll have to walk as well. And then he really put it as bluntly and clearly as he could. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So he makes it clear that this isn't in vain, that there's a reason for this. But he doesn't really give us confidence and he doesn't really give us a lot of assurance as to what that reason is. So he promised them that if they lived for him, there'd be great risk, yet it would become clear the reward would make the risk and loss worth it. So I want to make it very clear that before Jesus died and rose again, none of this made sense to them because they couldn't envision a world where suffering would mean anything good or would be worth it at all. They weren't expecting him to die, but then he did die, and then he rose again, and that's when it all made sense to them. Suddenly, they lost all fear of death because they watched Jesus suffer the worst death, most brutal, excruciating death possible, and he rose again, and they encountered a living, breathing Jesus a couple days later. So you read the book of Acts, and all of a sudden, the very disciples that were scared and that were cowards before, that didn't like this stuff that he was saying to them, that wanted him to, to, to stop talking about this stuff. Remember, Peter rebukes him on one occasion for talking about this stuff. The very disciples that were once scared become courageous and become bold and, and, and become fearless. And there's this fearlessness and there's this confidence in them. And they become even more bold and zealous and they maximize every opportunity to serve God in this life, especially when it seemed like there was so much on the line. What changed? What changed? They watched Jesus die and they watched him suffer the worst possible of death. They saw the grave he was buried in, and yet they had dinner with him three days later, and they spent 40 days with him, and they were convinced if death did not stop Jesus, and he promises us that serving him has a purpose and gives reason to this life, that death cannot stop us either. And it may be that as we bear our crosses, we're going to experience something similar to what he experienced. And that his death and resurrection are but a preview of our own death and resurrection. So, when they were drugged before courts, when they were beaten, when they were threatened uh, for their lives, the scripture says this. That they, count, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You think... How in the world could they have that kind of attitude? Well, Peter, years later, because he was one of these rejoicing for suffering, Peter, years later, would reflect on the boldness and the confidence that he had. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. 
I think a lot of us are surprised when we face trials and hardships. And there are some churches that just lie to people and say you're never going to struggle and never going to face hardships. And, and I'm not going to lie to you. I can't lie to you. But here's the thing. Those trials that you face, some of them are unavoidable. Some of them, because you are following Jesus, you are going to face hardships. Some of them, because of choices you make for him, it's going to bring the fire of hell against you. But Peter says, don't be surprised when you stand up for Jesus that it brings a trial on you. It brings struggles on you. Don't be surprised as you live for God in a fallen world that it gets hotter for you than it may for somebody else. Don't be surprised in general that you live in a fallen world and things break and things fall on you. Don't be surprised. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed because just as he rose from the dead you have that promise as well likewise the apostle Paul would say as much and further clarify his own faith and his own boldness in the face of hardships I love this from Philippians 3 Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Now, what does that mean? That means that there were things he had to give up. There were things that he had to say no to. There were opportunities he had to, to, had to turn away from. There are lifestyle choices that he made or that he would never make again. There are things that came upon him and, and he encountered and he suffered that he wouldn't have otherwise suffered if he had not followed Jesus. But what does he say? I count all things as loss because I realized it was all part of gaining Jesus. Do you see that? Peter says, rejoice. Paul says, rejoice because I see there was purpose in all of this that I might gain Christ and be found in him. And in this next part, so powerful that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Because what happens when we become like Jesus in his death? We become like him in his resurrection. Do you see that? So do you see what the disciples came to understand about suffering? Bearing a cross like Jesus brings us near to his greatest promise, the promise of resurrection. So here's the, the short of it. Christianity at its core is all about understanding the value of this life, but it's also about embracing the challenges of this life. Knowing the resurrection makes everything make sense. It gives meaning and purpose. If there's no resurrection, we just suffer in vain. If there's no resurrection, we suffer without hope. And you say, well, what about a life of no suffering at all? Can we have that? Listen, whether you are saved or whether you're not, this fallen world is going to cause you to fall and it's going to cause things to fall on you. So many people spend their lives trying to reverse the curse apart from Jesus, clinging to things, creating things to turn to, to make them numb or sidestep the struggles of this life. But no matter how much we try to avoid or escape it, hardships are going to come. Jesus said as much. For whoever would save his life will lose it. As in, you can work as hard as you can to be as healthy as you can and safe as you can be and protected as you can be. You can be wrapped in bubble wrap and take all the vitamins in the world. But guess what? One day, you're going to lose this life. You may lose it very comfortably. 
at a ripe old age of 120, falling asleep at night, or you may lose it violently in a tragic situation. But regardless, if you have an easy road or a tough road, it's going to end one day. So Jesus, hey, I know there's some of you that have a tougher road than others, and some that, you know, some that, if you're not a Christian, maybe you don't seem to face as many hardships as others, and maybe that becomes attractive to Christians because you feel like, hey, it's just me against the world, and you're like, why don't they suffer? Or maybe you just, you know, believe that, that that's just not the way it should be. But, but Jesus said, hey, it's going to cost you. This life is not going to be easy. And if you follow me, you see that you can lose it for a purpose. If you follow me, you can realize that this life is not in vain and you can go through the hardships and see that God is working out something in the hardships. And yes, by following Jesus, you may bring greater struggles on your life because the devil may come against you and you may make choices that make it harder on you. But Jesus says that's not a problem because as you choose the life of the cross, as you bear my cross, and as you no doubt face struggles because of it, you realize that you are losing your life for self to so that you can save it you're losing your life so that you may take up a better life so if we're going to lose this life anyway why not see it all find a purpose and a hope in his resurrection why not let go and lean in to the resurrection promise if we cling to Jesus and follow him, yes, the struggles are still there. Maybe they get worse and more acute, but only in him do we find the inspiration and motivation and understanding. In him, in Christ, we see value in suffering because it's all part of the redemption and restoration process. As this world rejects us, we are finding ourselves more and more eventually exclusively in Jesus. And in him, we see our pain and we find our purpose because of the resurrection promise. And I promise you, as Paul says in Romans, the sufferings are not worthy to compare to the glory that await us. Now, with all this in mind, I want to focus in on these next few verses. Now, verse 29 is a little bit of an oddity. I want to read it first, and I want to explain what he's talking about here. And then we're going to read verses 30 through 32. So he says, he's talking to them about how they claim to not believe in the resurrection. But he says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized? Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise up? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, Paul is not affirming this practice. Now, let me just kind of make it clear this was early days of Christianity people didn't really know a lot about Christianity there was no bible there was barely any gospels printed there was just a few copies here and there they a lot of the people were kind of making it up as they go so there were some people who were worried well if you if you get saved and Rome is killing Christians as they're getting saved well if somebody doesn't get baptized and join the church you know are they really saved and, and of course the Bible doesn't teach that that you have to be physically baptized to be saved thief on the cross went to heaven when he died Paul is not affirming this practice but in Corinth there were some people that were worried about their loved ones who got saved but didn't get to join the church and be baptized and they were literally having honorary baptisms again the Bible does not teach this promote this affirm this or say you should do this but they were doing it and Paul's saying the reason why y'all are doing that is because y'all want to believe that there's something after this life, right? The reason you're baptizing people in honor of people that have died is because you're hoping that the people that have died will come back to life one day, right? 
The reason you're doing this is because you hope there is a resurrection. So how can you then deny the resurrection when you're doing this thing that you shouldn't do, but you're doing this thing because you are saying or you are hoping that there is something next? His real message begins in verse 30, though. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? So he's saying, if there's no resurrection, what's the purpose of all the trials that we face? Or what is the reason for all this? 31, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ our Lord, I die daily. And he's being kind of hyperbolic. He's saying, I face death daily. I face hardships daily. Verse 32, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts in Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? He's saying, hey, what reason am I going through this life and literally risking my life? And, and we don't know if he's talking about literal beast or he's referring to the people that were chewing him up and spitting him out. I mean, you know, as, as a pastor, people can be vicious, but he might be talking, none of y'all are, he might be talking about people. He might be talking about uh, actual animals that, that he, he, you know, encountered uh, on an occasion. But the point of it is, Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, what is the reason for the sufferings that we face. And if we don't believe in a resurrection, we are going to drive ourselves crazy and going to lose our sanity because we're going to face trial after trial and eventually you're going to get wearied and eventually you're going to give up because you're not going to see that there's a reason for all this. You're not going to see there's a reason for the struggles that you're facing. If you just face those without the hope of the resurrection, eventually you're going to get beat down. And you know what I know? A lot of Christians who believe in the resurrection still don't understand their sufferings and their struggles. A lot of Christians who keep, you know, thinking, well, if, you know, God shouldn't make me have to go through this, and if, if God really loves me, he should take these away from me, because they don't understand the struggles and the trials are actually an opportunity to get closer to Jesus and to see the promise he's made to us about our resurrection life. All of the losses and risk and suffering are in vain if there is no resurrection. But if there is one, and if we lean into its promise, then we have the most to gain. Think about the confidence with which Paul would write this as he literally sat on death row. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The Apostle Paul is in a Roman prison days away from being beheaded for his faith. And yet he is not scared at all. He says, I am already being poured out. I am looking into heaven as I write these last words. These aren't the words of someone who lived a pampered, comfortable life, who avoided tough missions and never made sacrifices. These are the words of someone who counted the cost and gladly paid the highest of prizes. He didn't avoid missions because of danger. He didn't cheap out on serving because of the discomfort it might bring him. He pushed all his chips forward, and for that reason, he was confident and passionate in his final days. You can read testimony after testimony of all those facing their final moments as martyrs. If you study the early church history, the church fathers in the first few centuries believed in the words we've read tonight. 
Paul says, I faced death day after day, yet it was all worth it. But there's some that don't see the worth in it. There are some that doubt there is joy to be found in suffering and that the hope of the resurrection can be experienced in suffering. And he refers to them in verse 32. If the dead do not rise, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. He says, a lot of you live like that. A lot of you are already living as if there's no reason for it all. And you're trying to maximize every day for pleasure and for worldly comfort. He says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness. Do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. I tell you, I tell you it shows if we don't read our Bibles. It shows if we don't stay in fellowship with the work God is doing in his church and through his church. It shows if we don't understand the purpose of suffering, the purpose of denying our flesh. It shows in our distaste and bitterness towards trials and suffering, and it shows in our lust for this world's favor and comfort. Show me a Christian who doesn't understand the purpose of hardships they face. I'll show you a Christian who isn't in their Bible, who isn't in church where this truth is being taught, who isn't aware of the greater crosses being bore around the world, and is yoked together with a people of this world that are chasing after luxury, ease, and comfort. Obviously, the rest of the world aspires for these things, but Christians, we should know better. We should know that the true joy and true satisfaction is found in bearing the cross of Christ. Look at how Paul puts it in verse 35. But some will say, how are the dead raised up? With what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive. What is this next few words? Unless it dies. What you sow, you do not sow that that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases and each seed its own body. Here's what he's saying, that unless you plant the seed in the ground, it's not gonna grow. That's, you know, know, gardening 101, isn't it? That the seed isn't gonna grow unless it's buried. So what do our trials and what do our sufferings preview? They preview our death. And they teach us that death is not the end. That death is a necessary passage to experience resurrection. So you can face every trial and every struggle with confidence that you are being taught something about resurrection in that trial. More on that in a minute, but let's read on. All flesh is not the same, but there is one kind of flesh of man, another kind of flesh of animals, fish, and birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. Celestial is heavenly, terrestrial is earthly. But the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star. And he's saying that God wants to glorify our bodies, but our bodies won't be glorified unless they died and are buried. And you won't understand the promise of resurrection unless you struggle and unless you suffer because that's teaching you that one day when you die, that's not the end. Each trial we face allows us to experience an exclusive grace and comfort of God. Each of these experiences gives us a taste of the resurrection. Listen to how he compares and contrasts what we know now and what we will 
what we enjoy now and what we will enjoy in the days to come. So also the resurrection of the dead, the body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. So likewise, when you struggle and when you suffer, some part of you is being buried so it can raise up stronger. When you face a trial, some part of you that is weak is being strengthened. When you say no to sin and you endure through that temptation, some part of you that is weak is being clothed with power. When you choose God's way and it costs you some way, some part of you is being strengthened that otherwise would never have gotten that strength. Do you see the the process here? He says it's sown in natural body, it's raised in spiritual body. There is a natural and there is a spiritual. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last man Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterwards the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. So we are being changed as we suffer. And when we die, our resurrection will change us completely. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So Adam is who cursed us, but Jesus is who redeemed us. And as we bear his cross, we see that redemption process and we experience it. And it all is going to culminate one day in our death and resurrection. We are spiritually in Christ now, but one day we will be both bodily and spiritually because we will be glorified in our flesh. So here's what he's saying. Our salvation is not complete until we are raised up in this incorruptible body. That right now we are saved and secured from the moment we believe, but the process of our walk with Christ, the process of our Christian life is all about building us up toward that glorious day so every day matters every trial matters every choice you make matters because it's all a part of your transformation we'll wrap up and hear one of the most famous and comforting passages verses 50 through 57 now this i say brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does corruption inherit incorruption Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. So some will be raised up after they die, but some of us are still alive. So in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will raise incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, the mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you, see this? Do you see what he's saying to us here? That one day we will be changed in a twinkling of an eye. That our flesh will be glorified. 
and that all of our struggles and all of our sufferings will make sense because just as Jesus bore a cross and died, he rose again. And this life that may feature us bearing a cross will one day end with a resurrection. So either we're raised up from our graves and reunited with our bodies or we are raptured in our bodies. It's very important. We studied this in our eternity series. But when we die, our souls go to heaven. But the full and true version of eternity doesn't really get rolling until we are reunited with our bodies because that's how God intended us to experience eternal life. We go to our father's house when we die. But that is but a preliminary gathering a waiting room for the restoration of this earth and heaven's relocation to earth. The Bible tells us that the day of the Lord is like a thousand years. So it certainly makes sense that our time in heaven before the resurrection is but a few days when the Father's house culminates in the marriage supper of the Lamb when Jesus returns to this earth and the new heaven and new earth are just around the corner. We should live every day in preparation for this moment. We should live every day knowing that it will come sooner than later. And you know what your struggles remind you? Your struggles and your trials and your sufferings remind you that you can rejoice knowing that the worst of battles is producing the greatest of victories. But we must anticipate that day. Jesus told the parable of the virgins on the wedding in the wedding party that some of them got weary as the bridegroom delayed, but They became drowsy and they slept. But then at midnight, there was a cry. And the bridegroom said, come out and meet me. If we live each day thinking the best is passing away or we're losing touch with the best years of our life, clinging to whatever we can hold on to, we're not anticipating the day. But if we live each day seeing everything fade and pass, yet we know the best is yet to come. We cannot grow weary. We cannot get sleepy. We must be wide awake, living for Jesus in every moment, taking refuge in him in every trial, knowing that redemption draws near. Satan uses temptation and he uses your trials to try to get your eyes off of this prize, to try to discourage you and to frustrate you. But you can believe that victory that your victory is just around the corner. We believe that our death, our losses, only put our greatest gain all the more in line of sight. So Romans 13 says, besides this, you know, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Your salvation is nearer to you now than when you first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then cast off the work of darkness. Put on the armor of light. And Paul signs off, Chapter 15, by saying, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is what? Not in vain. Not in vain. Those are three words, I think, that summarize this message. The promise of the resurrection is that your life is not in vain. And especially your struggles, your sufferings, They are not in vain. Be steadfast, be patient, 
The victory is on the horizon. It could come today. It could come tomorrow. It may not come until we die. But nonetheless, Jesus has promised it will come. If you doubt that, just trust his word. He died. He rose again. He offers us a spirit of hope against hardships and boldness for our greatest battles. So our eyes should fix on him. He's coming again. He's coming for us. And he is bringing victory with him. Until he comes, we sing about it. We work towards it. We invest everything in him. We knit our hearts to him. Church, the only way we stay focused and grounded is by daily thinking on these things, singing about them, studying about it, planning our lives around this event. And every bad day you have, that reminds you there's a resurrection just around the corner. Every day, make every decision knowing that there is a resurrection coming. We choose to endure our trials. We choose to resist temptation. We choose to invest in his mission because we know he is coming again and with him comes our victory. So we do not grow weary. Our lives are not in vain because we have the promise of victory. Your worst days are only to remind you and to give you even greater confidence that there is a resurrection just around the corner when we will be changed from the inside out and forever we will be with the Lord. If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what does, but I'll tell you this. I know there's days where you get discouraged and you get frustrated, but Satan wants to use those days to distract you. But God says, I can redeem those days because one day, like those days preview, one day you will die. But that is not the end of your story because Jesus got back up and so will you. And forever we will be with him in victory. So let's tell the world about it. Let's tell the world about it in the way we respond to sin, the way we respond to trials, the way we live each day by saying there's a reason for all of this. If you want to know proof, just look at the empty tomb. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you for giving us this hope. Thank you for giving us this boldness. Lord, I know there's a lot of people that face struggles. There's a lot of trials that get us down. But one day, just as we are promised that we will come to the end of this life, we have a resurrection to look forward to. God, I pray you might would comfort us all knowing that there is a resurrection promise to all of us and that resurrection means victory for all of us. Lord, help us to be wide awake and to be anticipating that day, knowing that Jesus is gonna give reason and understanding to all of it. And if we trust in him and keep our eyes on him, we will not grow weary. We will not lose heart. And none of this will be in vain. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.